Welcome, and thank you for viewing our weekly sermon. I'm Pastor Malone, and I pray this message be a blessing to you and help you grow closer to Jesus. If you'd like to know more about having a personal relationship with Jesus or to connect with us as a church, please visit westacres.org. Thanks again, and God bless. I want to thank your Pastor Malone and so many of you who helped to make this Sin Relief Serve Tour here in Augusta such a special event. Last night, uh, your worship pastor Rob and his worship team were leading us in worship, and Coach Rick shared his testimony, and our state exec director Thomas Hammond preached the word of just a special time. And all throughout Augusta, people's lives have been shown the love of Jesus in really hundreds of different ways in hopes that the good news of Christ will most of all be communicated today and in days to come all throughout Augusta. So thank you so much. And Malone has allowed me just a couple of minutes to give you a little overview of what Sin Relief is because it's really the newest ministry in the Southern Baptist Convention. We just began in March of 2020 on the very week that COVID shut down the world. Quite an interesting time to begin a global ministry. But Sin Relief is about meeting needs as we watch God change lives. And it is for the first time ever, the International Mission Board and North American Mission Board have a joint ministry together. They've never done this before. And I think that's very exciting. It allows us to have a global impact of serving churches like West Acres and churches all around the globe as you carry out Christ's Great Commission through ministries of compassion. And as we do that, there are five major priority areas. One is just strengthening communities, dealing with a lot of poverty issues and global hunger and digging water wells and putting in special wells in areas where there's no clean water in third world areas. Secondly is ministry to refugees. And the biggest undertaking we've had so far in our very short years, almost four years coming here in March, is Ukrainian refugees, over 7 million Ukrainian refugees fleed in those first few months of the Ukraine versus Russia war. And mostly women and children, as the men are required to stay and defend their land. And all through churches in Eastern Europe, as well as in the Ukraine, we're seeking to provide resources to help those folks who have been displaced in a very terrible time in their life. And it's incredible how open people like that are to the good news of Jesus Christ when they've lost everything. The third major area is ministry to children and families, and we help churches like yours develop foster care and adoption care ministries so that that becomes a part of the DNA of a local church in a particular community. We also, fourth, are battling human trafficking, which is probably the most heinous evil in our world today and seeking to rescue as many of those young girls who are trapped in really what is a modern form of slavery in one of the, the great difficult issues that we're having to face. And probably where sin relief is best known is in disaster or crisis response, whether it's a storm here in the United States or whether it's the Israeli-Hamas war. We now have ministry to displace families within Israel, both Jewish and Palestinian, because of the Israel and Hamas war there. So all over the world, we're seeking to respond to crisis, and I hope you'll hear this most of all, that we constantly remind our staff that helping hurting people on their journey to hell is missing their greatest need, and that is salvation in Jesus Christ. 
So we're all about the gospel at Simberleaf. We're not a humanitarian ministry. We're a gospel ministry that believes in ministries of compassion, showing the love of Christ, really wins the right to be heard to share the greatest good news anyone will ever hear. God's love for them through Jesus Christ and how we can be saved and know him forever. We're having these serve tours in five cities around America this year and two international cities, one in the nation of Armenia and one in South Africa, in Cape Town, South Africa this summer. And these serve tours allow us to love on a city through the local churches, knowing that the churches are going to be there long after these serve tours occur, but it allows the churches to have a greater, more public witness of showing the love of Christ as we carry out Christ's great commission. So there are a lot of ways that you can be engaged through volunteering, through giving, through serving in a serve tour at Sin Relief. You can go to sinrelief.org and you can just find out the different ministries that are going on because your church supports our Southern Baptist missions. Here's an incredible thing. All of us on the Sin Relief staff are either a part of the IMB or the North American Mission Board. So any dollars given to Sin Relief by an individual or a church goes 100% to ministry. No personnel costs, no operating costs. It's just part of the Southern Baptist global missions approach. And that's pretty exciting in realizing the opportunity that God has given us. So thank you. Now, I realize that you've not come here today to hear about sin relief. You've come to hear a word from the Lord. That's the most important thing. And I'm excited to continue in Malone's series that he's in in the book of Acts. So I ask you to turn in your Bible, if you will, right where you left off last Sunday in Acts 16 as Malone took you through verse 10 and really focusing on spiritual discernment as a key in following Christ but also a key in missions. And today we're going to build on that as we begin in verse 11. We'll read through about verse 15 to introduce our text but we're going to go through verse 24 today and we're going to look at the impact of spirit-led missions. Now realize when the Apostle Paul as you heard last week had this vision to go to Macedonia rather than to go into Asia, you're, you're seeing an example of spirit-led missions. And understanding that, we want to see the impact of that and the different principles of how you can really maximize spirit-led missions in your personal life, in your local church, and around the world. So to introduce our text, we're going to be reading verses 11 through 15. And to honor God, I think it's always good if you're physically able to stand now, to honor God as we read his word beginning in Acts 16, verse 11. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace. And on the following day to Neapolis, I'm sure all those places mean a lot to you. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. 
And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you had judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Father, as we stand before you now, Holy Spirit, may you fill us with anticipation to receive your word, the word you have prepared for all of us personally on this occasion. And may our hearts and our minds and our wills be receptive to receiving your word in faith and applying our faith to everyday life. And Lord, as always, when we look at your word, may Jesus Christ be glorified. For it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A long time to stand through the sermon. Today, all the world, especially in the U.S., is going to be focused on what I believe is the ultimate team sport, football. Now, some of you that are basketball, baseball fans, soccer players, you may object to that. But really, it's hard to see a more team sport than football. And no matter who you pull for today, whether it's KC or whether it's San Francisco, it's going to be a big event all over America today. Watching players work together as a team to try to strive for the ultimate prize in winning the Super Bowl. Now, I share that with you because one of the first principles in being spirit-led in missions is going in teams. Now, your Pastor Malone dealt with this last week in focusing on spiritual discernment and how Paul had discernment as he chose Timothy, a young man that really became a son in ministry to him, to join them on their second missionary journey. This is the second mission trip in the history of the church. And you also see that Dr. Luke, who gives us Luke's gospel that's about Jesus Christ, the body of Christ number one in the gospel of Luke, and then the body of Christ number two, the church in the book of Acts. And so he identifies himself as being a part of this team. So you've got four guys. You've got Paul and Silas that were sent out by the church at Antioch. They add Timothy to the team, and now Dr. Luke identifies himself here in this particular chapter as being a part of that team. One of the principles you want to realize in spirit-led missions is going in teams. Jesus sent the disciples out two by two. Why? Because it's, it's difficult. It's not easy. You get discouraged. You face all kind of opposition. You, you face people rejecting you and your message. Uh, There's not always resources that you feel you need to carry that out. We need to go in teams. Let me, let me explain it this way. When I finished college at the University of South Carolina down the road, I know most of you are probably dogs, Georgia Tech or whatever, but I'm from Atlanta. My dad played at Carolina years ago, raised us on being Gamecocks. We've had 23 folks in our extended family, all from Georgia, to go to the University of South Carolina, which is very unusual. I've kidded my dad. Why didn't you decide to play in Alabama or Notre Dame or somewhere where we'd have a lot more success in pulling for things? But anyway, that's a side story that has nothing to do with this sermon. After I finished Carolina, my wife Ann and I married, and we moved here to Augusta, lived on Washington Road in the San Susi Apartments. They're now leveled. Augusta National is gobbling up all that land around there, so they're not there anymore. But I was in sales for a few years with a chemical company here, and thank goodness 
there was one other sales rep here in Augusta. And every Monday morning, we would get together in some breakfast place and we would just gulp cups of coffee to get ourselves fortified to go out that week and be turned down about 80% of the time. That's not easy. We were working straight commission, so I'd have the Monday morning sweats every Monday morning, wondering where income was going to come from that week. But there was something about having somebody else that understood. And Jesus understood that by sending the disciples out two by two. The church at Antioch followed the example of Jesus by sending out disciples on mission trips in two by twos. And here we see a team of four that is continuing in this mission as Paul wanted to go to Asia, but the Holy Spirit led him to Europe. And this is a very significant leading of Paul in going the direction he's going. And they're going in teams. And it tells us that they wound up coming to Europe at Philippi. Now, that's significant because Philip of Macedonia, the father of Alexander the Great, he also was a conqueror, not anything like his son Alexander the Great. But when he conquered this town, in all humility, he named it Philippi, after himself. And it was a very important Roman colony. It's a place of influence. So Paul and his team are led there to Philippi. And as they're led there to Philippi, they go where God is already working. And that's the second thing to think about. The second principle in spirit-led missions is Look for where God is already working and join with him at what he's doing. Now, if you read about Paul in the missionary journeys, you'll find that he usually went to the synagogue first. Why didn't he do that in Philippi? Well, probably there was no synagogue. You had to have 10 Jewish men to form a synagogue. So perhaps in Philippi there was not a synagogue there. So he goes by the riverside because he heard some women were having a prayer meeting there. Probably some of you that are followers of Jesus Christ have been influenced by experiencing God, by Henry Blackaby. He graduated to heaven this weekend. And one of the key principles that Blackaby taught in experiencing God is look where God is working and join with him. And so that's what, that's what Paul and his team are doing on this second mission trip in the history of the church. They look to where God is working in Philippi. There's no synagogue there. He would normally go to the synagogue first because Christ came first for the Jews. Never forget that. So many of you are hesitant to share Christ with your Jewish friends. They should be your primary focus of sharing Christ. That has not changed. Jesus, born as a son of Israel as well as son of God, always prioritized the Jews as we should as well. And yet here we see there was not a synagogue, so he goes where women are worshiping the Lord. Now, just because they're worshiping God doesn't mean that they are saved and know God. This is a sign of being God-fearing. Some of you that are here today are God-fearing. You're not a Christian. You've never given your heart and life to Christ, but you do have a respect for God. You understand worshiping God even though you may not have yet connected personally with the Lord through Jesus Christ. And that was the case for these women. So they go where God is working. And as they go there, they meet this most important woman by the name of Lydia, a very wealthy woman. Look at verse 14 again. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. Now, 
You need to understand how important this woman is. Now, everybody, listen. Are you listening? Don't miss this. Think about the significance of this historical moment. Paul wanted to go to Asia, but because he was spirit-led, the Holy Spirit led him to Europe. And this is going to be the first person that decides to be a follower of Christ on the continent of Europe that would become the leader in Christianity for 1,900 years. And really here, we're worshiping in a Christian church in North America largely because of this event that happened on the second mission trip in the history of the church. Because the gospel went to Europe. Europe became the leader of Christianity throughout the whole world. And because it was largely Europeans that settled in North and South America, we're in a Christian church today largely because of what happened here. This is a very important historical moment. But why in the world would God choose a woman in the first century? Now, some of you that are women probably very offended that I asked that question. But look, they had no rights. They had no status. It was, you think it's tough today to, today to be a woman? Especially with some of the men you have to live with. You think it's tough today? Listen, nothing like the first century. Nothing like those days. And so God in his wisdom chooses a woman. A very influential woman. A very aristocratic woman. A very wealthy woman. Because she was a seller of purple fabrics and all preaches the gospel. I know you have Bible teachers that preach and teach what the gospel is. I know if you live in the South, you've heard the term gospel. But if somebody asks you today, what is the gospel? How would you answer the question? What is the gospel? The gospel is Christ died for our sins and Christ rose from the dead. That is the gospel. That's what it is. Now, you need your pastor and you need your Bible teachers to explain, well, who is Christ? He's the Son of God. Well, why did he die for our sins on the cross? Because all of us as sinners get separated from God and we need a Savior to save us from our sinful condition. We need a Savior to forgive us of all of our sins. We need a Savior to make us right with God because if we're going to get right with God through good works, we've got to be perfect. There may be two or three of you that are delusional and think that you're perfect and never sin, but most of you probably realize that we all fall short. And if we are guilty of one sin, we are no longer qualified for heaven. There's only been one who has lived a sinless life. His name is Jesus. And the perfect one, the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God has given His life for us on the cross to pay the penalty for sin, which is what? It is death. It is the judgment of God through death. And Christ did that so that when you and I finally come to our senses and confess our sin and need for a Savior and put our trust in Him, we are forgiven of our sins. And we are made right with God, not because we're good enough, not because we deserve it, but because of Jesus, what Jesus has done for us. And on top of that, there's a huge bonus. Christ rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death so that when you and I trust Him, we have victory over death as well. Now, I don't know exactly how it is in Augusta today compared to 50 years ago when my wife and I lived here. But in Atlanta, we're eat up with bad news. Whether it's television, radio, whether it's social media, or even the ancient form of communication called newspapers. If you're young, ask your grandparents what a newspaper is. Wherever, wherever people see news, it's just nothing but bad news. 
But folks, this is the ultimate good news. That the God of the universe loves each of us so much that he sent his son to die for our sins so that when we put our trust in him and come to him with repentant faith, a willingness to surrender our life and follow Christ, then we receive eternal life, abundant life. That's, that's great news. So imagine Lydia and these women, they're already seeking God, they're worshiping God, but they don't know God personally. And they hear this good news that Paul shares them. Well, they were overwhelmed. And they embraced that with faith. And here is the very first Christian mentioned on the continent of Europe that is going to change the course of history. That's pretty awesome. And then we see in verse 15, when she and her household had been baptized, she urges, saying, if you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, another principle of spirit-led missions is this. We are to be baptized as a testimony of our faith when we trust Christ. Now, I realize a lot of you here in a room this large, you probably are, have come to Christ at some point in your life. But... You were not baptized as a testimony of your faith after you accepted Christ. You were baptized as an infant. Or maybe some of you were baptized as a, as a child in a Baptist church because your mama wanted you to or your friends were doing it. But you were not a Christian when that occurred. Realize this about baptism. The mark of being a disciple is baptism. It is what Christ has chosen for us publicly identifying with the fact that we have made a decision to follow Christ. Your parents don't have the authority to make that decision for you. Your friends when you're a little child in a Baptist church don't have the authority to make that decision for you. Some of you that are followers of Christ need to talk to your pastor and your staff about getting baptized as a believer. Because even if you were baptized before you trusted Christ, that has nothing to do with true Christianity and being a disciple. The first command Jesus gives us as a disciple and follower of Jesus is to be baptized. That's the first thing we're commanded to do. Well, some of you have been a Christian 20, 30, 40 years. You've never followed the first command of Jesus in being a disciple. How can you be in spirit-led missions if you neglect the first command that Jesus gives his followers? So maybe today is the time to get that right. And think about it this way. I know some of you still get confused. I realize our... Our convention of churches is known as Baptist, so you think, well, this is a big deal to us. But I really do believe, even though we get a little goofy on some minor theological points at times, on this one, it really is biblical. And it's not that you are saved through baptism. Listen, John, I, bet, I bet Malone's had this here at, at West Acres. We had a lot of folks through the years that enter our baptismal waters lost and come out wet and lost. You don't get saved in the baptism. It is a public testimony of the fact that you have decided to trust Christ as your Savior and Lord. That's what it is. It's a public testimony. Think about it this way. You can imagine pastoring a church for 38 years in Atlanta, Georgia. I had a lot of weddings. And this may shock you. Now listen, are you listening? I never had one couple fall in love in their wedding ceremony. Not one. It never happened. Because you see, when they came to get married, they were already in love. 
They would just share in their testimony and public commitment of that before God in the body of Christ in getting married. And that's really what baptism is. You don't get saved in baptism. It's just your public commitment before the Lord in the body of Christ that you've decided to become a follower of Jesus. So if you're really serious about being a follower of Christ and disciple of Christ, realize the very first thing he commands us to do is to be baptized. And some of you today were baptized before you trusted Christ. That's backwards. You really want to get that right. And it's amazing the impact your testimony will have when you confess that before the body of Christ and decide to get baptized. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, whatever you do, don't get baptized. You'll, you'll come out of those waters lost, just like a lot of other folks have. But if you're not a follower of Christ, I hope this will be the day that you respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. And then, in responding to Christ, you make that decision to obey Him in getting baptized. But there's a second, another principle, not a second one, we're on about the fourth or fifth, I believe now, but another principle in Spirit-led missions, and that is planting churches. You see, this is the very first church in the history of Europe. And it takes place in a house. Obviously, Lydia is a very wealthy woman. She has all these people with her. Now she brings in these four men. There's lodgings, uh, places for them. This is a very wealthy woman. And this is where the first church takes place in all of Europe. And if you'll look at the mission strategy of our International Mission Board and our North American Mission Board, it is all about church planning. You see, our International Mission Board realized long ago, it's not just reaching individuals for Christ, but if a culture is going to have to be reached, is going to be reached, there has to be churches planted there because Lone Ranger Christians have a very difficult time making it. But we need to be a part of the body of Christ. That's why, that's why COVID was so tough on the church. We didn't have opportunities to be together for a period of time. And we need that time to worship the Lord together like you've done in this service today, as well as to be with others in Bible study and fellowship to encourage one another in the faith. The North American Mission Board has planted over 10,000 new churches over the last 11 or 12 years. That's really extraordinary. There's not another denomination comes close to what has happened there. And if the trend continues on that, we're going to get to a point in the next 10 to 15 years where over half the churches in the Southern Baptist Convention will have been church plants in the last 20 years. That's pretty remarkable. And by you supporting the North American Mission Board, or supporting the International Mission Board. When people are reached in remote areas of the world, there is always the desire of our missionaries to help a church be planted there, usually a house church, just like this, because we need one another. But that's not all. We see in verse 16 that we should expect spiritual warfare. Look at verse 16. It happened. I love the dramatic flair of the biblical writer, Dr. Luke. It happened. That is, we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination, that's a demonic spirit, met us, who was bringing her master such profit from her fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out and saying, these men are bond servants of the most high God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. 
And she continued doing this for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out of her at that very moment. Now, question, question. She is saying to people, these men represent the most high God. They can give you the way of salvation. What is wrong with that? That seems like a, just a wonderful setup for people to listen to the gospel that Paul and these four men are sharing. But it says Paul got annoyed. Now, understand this about Satan, about the devil. And those of you who have shared your faith, you've probably seen this happen in your life. The devil is all about distractions creating distractions so that people don't hear the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And those of you who shared your faith, you might have been uh, sharing with somebody one-on-one and all of a sudden the baby starts crying. Now, the, the baby's not demonic. It's not that. It's not that. But the devil will use any distraction to keep people from hearing the gospel. And that's what Paul was ignoring. He could tell this woman was not of the spirit of the Lord, but the spirit of the devil. So he confronts this woman. And the demon leaves this woman. She had a very important job in that community. She was a fortune teller, kind of like a lot of new age gurus with American corporations that are brought in to give you the right kind of mindset and understanding how to relate to customers and culture here. Well, she was doing the same kind of thing for people and business people there where they lived in Philippi. And so they're going to be upset about that. But the main thing we need to understand is When you begin to be on the front lines of sharing the gospel of Christ, whether it's going across the street in Evans, Georgia, or whether it is going across the world in southern India, when you begin to share the gospel with people who are lost, expect spiritual warfare. Expect it. Don't be afraid of it. Don't be surprised about it. Now, the only exorcism I've ever been a part of occurred in South India when Johnson Ferry was on a mission trip there. And a group of national Indian pastors that we were in relationship with, they had been working in these rural villages in southern India for a period of time to bring them to hear an American speaker in person. That was their draw, to come hear an American speaker in person. They built this beautiful tent. They had hundreds and hundreds of Indians from villages around there sitting on the the dirt sitting on the ground under that tent, and we began to have a worship service. And in the middle of singing, just as you and I were singing a bit ago, all of a sudden, this older woman let out a blood-curdling scream. I mean, I remember it just made the hairs on my arms stand on end. It was not a natural scream. And one thing about the people in India, they have no trouble believing in evil spirits, unlike a lot of Americans, even in our churches in America. And I mean, they scattered away from that woman. It totally disrupted the worship service. Now think about what the devil's doing. It's all about distractions so people won't hear the gospel. And thankfully, my interpreter, who's also a wonderful preacher, he began to pray with intensity. I didn't understand a word he was saying, but he began to pray with intensity and crying out for God to free that woman of that demon. Now I've got to confess. When this scene was happening, I kept my eyes open while he was praying. I was really curious what was going to happen here. I've got to confess that to you. And several of the Indian pastors gathered around this woman, and they prayed for her, laid hands on her. And y'all, it was incredible. After he had prayed for this woman about a minute, all of a sudden, her body went limp. And out of the screams, her body just spastic contortions. I mean, it was just so totally unnatural. 
She just went limp. And here's what I'll never forget. And those of you, your pastor can probably share experiences like this. The countenance in her eyes. She had the wildest eyes when she was screaming and doing all those muscular contortions there. But when she looked up, her eyes, just such a peace there. And the number of times I pray with people to receive Christ in my office or a restroom, we'd be visiting one-on-one, and knew that they were not a believer, they would join in a prayer of salvation, and then when we'd open our eyes, time and again, I could just see there was something different in their countenance. You, you can't fake it. You just sense a difference in their countenance. And that's, that's what happened in India. And y'all, I'm not that gifted as an evangelist. I always want to have an evangelistic focus, but, but you know, there are pastors and individuals probably here in West Acres have a gift in evangelism. That's, that's not my gift in the style. I always want to share Christ and I always want to share the gospel. But on that day, after those men had prayed for that woman, they gathered everybody back in that tent. We carried on with the service and we called for the invitation to end, asking these Hindus to stand, which was a very bold thing to do, and that culture would be radically countercultural. Over a hundred of those people stood to trust Christ that day. Now, I was so overwhelmed. I, I, I was just rejoicing. And also, as we were going back to our van after the service that day, I turned to the team from John's Ferry. I said, you know, if we could have an occasional exorcism at John's Ferry, we'd see all kind of folks come to Christ. <laughs> it never did happen, but man, that was an example of visible spiritual warfare and how the devil is all about distracting people any way he can from hearing the good news of the gospel. And the power of God overruled that day. Because greater is he who is within you, the Lord, his spirit, than he, the devil, in this world. Don't forget that. Expect spiritual warfare, but don't fear spiritual warfare. Because greater is he who is in you than the devil who is in the world. Now, the devil's far smarter and stronger than any of us, but he's a weakling compared to Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So just in the name of Jesus, do not fear the spiritual warfare. But we read on here. It gets even tougher as we think about what Paul is going through. When her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. They dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews. Now, isn't it interesting, so often, that Jewish people get blamed for whatever trouble is occurring. That's part of also the devil constantly being hostile and anti-Semitic thinking towards the Jewish people. And they're proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or observe, being Romans. And the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them, proceeding to order them to be beaten with rods, beating Paul and Silas. And when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, sometimes we don't just face spiritual warfare, but sometimes when we're up front sharing the gospel, we're going to face persecution. Now, please listen carefully. In America, we don't really face persecution yet. We face discrimination as a follower of Christ. Not persecution. We're not thrown into prison. We're not beaten with rods. We're not 
kill for the faith yet, but discrimination is always the first step towards persecution. So do we stop fulfilling the mission of Christ and sharing the gospel because we might be persecuted? Absolutely not. And think about Paul in this situation, folks. He is the original religious terrorist, just like we have religious terrorists in Islam. Well, Paul was the original uh, religious terrorist in Judaism as he was trying to kill and trying to imprison Christian after Christian before he came to Christ. And then he had that dramatic encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And can you imagine, you have devoted your life as a religious zealot to doing what you feel is pleasing to God, and he finds out everything he's been doing has been wrong. Now that had to be a humbling moment. But Paul understands why they're persecuted. Because when people are lost and captive of the evil one, their hostility to Christians carrying out the mission is really just a hostility to Jesus. So we don't back off because there's the threat of persecution or discrimination. You know, I, I'm going to say this. I, I know there's all kinds of things about America that trouble you. and we Obviously, we have such a divided nation. But I will say this. Christians in America are so obsessed with their rights that we forget that maybe God's going to allow us to go through some persecution so that we can show the world that we really do love Jesus more than our own lives. And we've had it good for over 200 years with the rights we have here in America, but who knows what we're going to face in the years ahead. So may we be so devoted to Jesus and the mission of the church in taking the gospel to every people group on the face of the earth that we are willing to pay whatever price is called for. So are you? Are you? You see some basic principles here in spirit-led missions and the impact of it. Paul and Silas, Timothy and Luke, led by the Spirit to Europe, they go in teams, they look where God is already moving, they join with him, they preach the gospel, this first convert in Europe, Lydia, accepts Christ, very influential woman, God has chosen the one that he has selected to be the first follower of Christ and her household, they get baptized as a testimony of their faith, a church is planted there. They begin to face spiritual opposition or spiritual warfare, but the power of Christ through the Holy Spirit is far stronger than anything the devil throws there. And then they even experience persecution. And next week, your pastor will tell you about an extraordinary story of what God does as they're thrown into this prison and how they respond to it and their witness and what happens out of that. You don't want to miss it. So, today, here's my question. If you're a follower of Christ, are you willing to go on a short-term trip? This is the second short-term mission trip in the history of the church. Are you willing to go for a weekend, a week? 
Are you willing to go extended time? Are you willing to have a lifetime calling to global missions? Are you willing to go? This is the church that gives generously to missions. Are you willing to give more? Give beyond what you're normally doing so that God can begin to do an incredible work when it comes to the role and the calling of West Acres Baptist Church in Christ's overall kingdom enterprise for fulfilling his great commission. What does God want to do through your life and the lives of this church to fulfill aspects of the great commission like you've never dreamed of? Are you willing to give? Are you willing to go? And for those of you that are not followers of Christ, or, or maybe those of you who are, are what I call cultural Christians, you think you're a Christian because you believe what the Bible says about Jesus, you're a member of the church, you've been baptized, you may even be active in this church, but you've never really trusted Christ. You've never really given Christ your heart and life. Our churches are just overrun with cultural Christians who are spiritually lost. But today the Holy Spirit is saying, you know, because of what Jesus has done for me on the cross, because he's risen from the dead, because of all that is involved in trusting Christ, I realize I need to make that decision today. I hope you will. I hope you will. Why wait on receiving the greatest news you'll ever hear in all your life? Why wait? Some of you have been Christian a while. You need to get baptized. You just, how can you think about fulfilling your role as a disciple of Jesus when you're disobedient on the very first thing he commands us to do? When we trust Christ. If the Holy Spirit is convicting your heart and life today, may you respond in faith to the leading of the Lord in your life. May this be a moment of destiny for you individually and in the life of this church.